welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of the Fearcast, to episode eight of the Fearcast. Uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, this is a podcast dedicated to OCD anxiety and its treatment and trying to get your life back. Uh, my name is Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed MFT. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, that stands for marriage and family therapist or uh, mother effing therapist, uh, depending on your school's accreditation. And uh, I specialize in uh, treatment of anxiety spectrum disorders, um, or being that this is the episode that's coming out right before Halloween, I exercise fear demons. Super scary. All right. Well, so usually at the end of the show, I, I say this, but I'm going to say this now. So if you have questions or comments for a future episode, please give me a call or send them on in. Um, this is a podcast that is made most effective to you listeners if you have specific questions. You can also make suggestions for overall or general topics that you'd like discussed. Um, I'm, trust me, I'm, I'm happy to yammer on about stuff uh, in OCD land or stuff that's on my mind, but I I want to know what's on your mind. So you can do this in two, two of the best ways to do this are this. You can give me a call by calling 714-594-9281. You can leave me a voice message, and I'll put that on a future episode. Or you can submit a question through the fearcastpodcast.com website. Go in over to the Ask a Question link and submit your question there. Also, again, if you have feedback for the show, uh, like, hey, it's too long, or it's too short, or great content, or weird voice, or whatever it is, uh, I, I want to know. I ultimately want to know how to make this show better and more interesting for you, the listeners. If you already like the show, uh, you can go over to iTunes. Well, first off, I do want to hear about it. You can let me know. You can also go over to iTunes and uh, uh, submit a review there. Uh, if you don't like the episode, or if you don't like the show, then keep your opinions to yourself. All right. So in advance of the main uh, uh, topic today, uh, I'm going to be talking about phobias in general, just kind of generalized phobia stuff. Uh, so if you have questions about a specific phobia or specific phobias, um, or you have your own story of overcoming a phobia, or you're currently struggling with the phobia, uh, please contact me, uh, and I'm happy to discuss it uh, on a future episode. So this topic started for me, but based on a conversation I was actually having with my grandma about podcasts and about anxiety and about OCD. And we were talking about uh, uh, phobias and fears and having unwanted intrusive thoughts. And we were talking about anxieties as irrational thoughts or irrational beliefs, which started a conversation about how do we know a phobia is irrational versus being entirely rational? What is an irrational phobia? What's a rational one? So I wanted to talk about that here because I think a lot of the times we sometimes, a lot of the times we'll think about fears and anxieties as things that inherently don't make sense or that we shouldn't be afraid. And some people have an idea that we should never be afraid of anything. Um, and there are some folks in the middle who sometimes think that, well, we should be afraid of some things. You may even have a friend out there that says, ah, just stop being afraid of what you're afraid of or whatever verbiage they tend to use. So if this is you, if you have a, a, a phobia of something, if you're afraid of something, this is the episode for you. So I want you to start out first by thinking about something that you're afraid of. Now I want you to get a clear image of this item, of this place, this person, this activity, whatever it is. I want you to think about the last time that you encountered this thing. What did you feel like? What did the event feel like? What did the item feel like? What is it that you were afraid of in that whole moment? What were you thinking about? And what did you do? 
What did other people say about all of this? Now, I want you to keep this in mind as we progress. So for this episode, we're going to be talking about specific phobias. So these are going to be things like heights and elevators and driving and needles and dogs or other wild animals or things like that. So these are specific things that we're afraid of that tend to lead to avoidance of common places, of items, uh, people, and activities for fear of encountering these things and or suffering feared consequences of these things. So what's a good definition of specific phobia? So the National Institute of Mental Health describes a specific phobia as an intense, irrational fear of something that poses little or no actual danger. It goes on to say, although adults with phobias may realize that these fears are irrational, even thinking about facing the feared object or situation brings on severe anxiety symptoms. So the phobias that we have are also very, very common. So a study cited by the National Institute of Mental Health, the NIMH, said of people 18 years and older, it's estimated that 9.1% of U.S. adults have specific phobias within the past year. It also says that overall, an estimated 12.5% of, of U.S. adults experience a specific phobia at some point in their lives. So this is actually something that is really common for a lot of people. So the Anxiety Disorders Association of America, again, the ADAA, the American Dodgeball Association of America, cites a statistic that says specific phobia affects 8.7% of the population. So that's approximately 19 million adults. It also goes on to say the average onset of these specific phobias is around seven years old. So this is something that um, we've likely had for a long time. If you have a specific phobia, you probably have had it for a long time. So what happens when we encounter one of the things that we're afraid of? Well, our brain is going to perceive some type of danger involved with whatever it is that we're encountering. So in order to protect us, our sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it, when it perceives this threat. So this is that classic fight or flight response that preps you and preps your body to defend itself from this danger, this attack, or to run the heck away from it. So it perceives something that can cause you harm, or at least it thinks it can cause you harm. And by the way, this response is, again, I know we've talked about this before, it, it's a natural and adaptive process in many situations. It's there to help you out. Your brain, very reasonably so, says, I don't really want to be hurt, and there are a lot of things out there that cause us harm, so we're going to try to do our best to keep us from getting hurt. Now, it can do a lot of different things to our body. Some of the ways that our body responds is our eyes will dilate because it wants to get as much light into our eyeballs so we can see what's attacking us or we can see how we can get away. It's going to release a whole bunch of adrenaline into our system so that we can use our muscles as efficiently and effectively and as, as powerfully as possible so we can fight whatever's there to attack us or we can run away. Now, by the way, this is partially where that shaking comes from when we get really anxious. What it's also going to do is it's going to constrict some of our blood vessels in our arms and legs or our extremities. What that's trying to do is it's going to bring in as much blood into your organs as possible so that you can stay alive. So it's going to try to keep it going to your heart and to your lungs to keep that whole system going. That's kind of why when we start to feel anxious, sometimes we'll, we'll describe all of a sudden that we feel really cold. Um, that's because there's less blood in our extremities. 
couple other things that it does. Um, it's going to slow down our immune system. It's going to slow down our digestion, both of which are relatively unimportant when it comes to survival, especially in the short term. It's going to say, we're going to slow these things down to try to put all of our energies towards running or fighting. Survival. And we'll get back to digesting things. We'll get back to fighting uh, uh, viruses and bacteria in our body. But we just need to make sure that this saber-toothed tiger over there is not going to eat my face off. So eh, it's a little bit of a uh, little bit of a trade-off, I suppose. Okay, so back to rational and irrational fears. So defining these two things, ultimately speaking, is not going to be that important. But one way to think about it is a rational fear might be something that on its face could cause us harm and damage. Heights can be one of those things. Tigers can be one of those things. Snakes, spiders, flying can even potentially be one of those things. These are things that if things go wrong or the thing itself could cause us harm, it could damage us in some type of way. If you fall from a height, likely speaking, you're going to get hurt. Now, there are going to also be some things that we're afraid of that I suppose we can call irrational fears. And these are, I'm defining these things as, as, as things that we have a feared response to or have feared reactions to um, that essentially by itself don't deserve to have the fear. Now, these items or places or objects usually des- engender a fear in us because there's a feared story that happens as a result of these. So some of these things are going to be like clowns. People are afraid of clowns, sock puppets, inanimate objects such as needles, knives, cars, and even open spaces. Open spaces itself It's just an open space. Now, I will acknowledge that perhaps open spaces may have an evolutionary function to it in terms of why we're afraid of open spaces, but it's just an open space. A lot of these things, again, have this story that's related to it. There's also going to be a little bit of crossover with what we're afraid of. So when an inanimate object is wielded in a way that could cause us harm or damage, um, I don't know, such as a person with a gun or going to get your blood drawn, these things could cause us harm, some worse than others. And these are now situations in which we can experience pain or harm. So I went through all of that explanation to talk about rational versus irrational fears to ultimately say, again, that it doesn't matter. What's more important, rather than calling a fear rational or irrational, is going to be our reaction to that fear, our response to that fear. And we can have rational responses to fears, or we can have completely irrational responses to fears. A rational response to a fear is going to take into account the level of threat offered by the stimulus, offered by the thing or the place of the item or the whatever, and then responded to with an equal amount of precaution. So as the level of threat and risk goes up, our level of attention should go up in concert to and in a similar proportion to that of the danger. In other words, let's say it's a snake. My anxiety about a snake, if it's 10 yards away, should be less than my fear of it being 10 feet away from me, then should also be less if it's 10 inches away from me. So my response to that potential danger should go up. I should be a little bit more cautious of a snake as it progressively gets closer to me. Irrational responses, on the other hand, could be things like complete or outright avoidance of that item or object or place. You'll also notice in this, if, if, if you're thinking about it, and, and if you don't have any specific fears, but you have maybe anxiety or social, social phobia, um, 
you can think about these responses, these irrational responses, these excessive responses, as compulsions. Essentially, they are. If we want to use the terminology, we can use the, you can be a compulsion. This is going to be something that we do to try to guarantee safety or to at least make us feel better. And it may not have any real or direct impact on whatever that thing is. So in terms of the irrational responses, what, what does this mean? With the idea of heights, are you completely unwilling to put Christmas lights up on a one-story house? Sure, you can, you can fall from a one-story building and, and maybe get hurt, but does it mean guaranteed death? If you're worried about putting up Christmas lights on maybe a 20-story building uh, without a whole lot of safety equipment, maybe you should be a little bit more cautious related to that. Other irrational responses, are you refusing to get blood drawn or even to get a shot as part of a necessary medical treatment? Or just simply, are you refusing to be around a clown? If a clown walks in the room, you go, thank you, but no thank you, I'm out, and you just leave. It's just a person in a ridiculous costume. So these responses, I would say, are irrational, they're excessive, uh, because they because they ultimately provide little protection from genuine danger or are excessive in comparison to the level of threat, pain, or actual danger involved. Now, of course, I have to add this caveat, of course there's dangers involved in anything. Again, as I mentioned, you could fall off the roof. You could get a bad shot from a doctor uh, that could result in infection. And you could be one of the unlucky ones that are around a murderous clown. I suppose they're out there, but it's probably unlikely. Okay, so how do I know it's irrational? All right, this is where it gets a little bit more gray. I know, get excited, right? With this, there often isn't a right or wrong answer with our general fears and phobias. But here are a couple things you can do. One, you can ask a trusted, reliable, and reasonable friend or someone around you if they think your response to something is irrational or excessive. Ask them what they would do. See what they would do about it. Now, be cautious not to ask every single person you know, hoping you're eventually going to find someone who's going to confirm your fears. And don't ask a friend who you already know is scared of what you're afraid of, or is that person who's just overly cautious and everyone kind of knows they're overly cautious and avoidant of, or an avoidant of stuff. This will ultimately be unhelpful if you're just trying to confirm what you already believe. And if you know that rational, reasonable person... You can ask them, hey, do you think that this is reasonable and rational? If they say no, that question is one and done. You've asked them and no more. You got your answer. Another way to consider this is how much is this issue getting in the way of your life? Are you limiting your life in any way because of it? Are you saying no to things that you used to say yes to? Or saying no to things that you'd like to do? This may be an irrational fear. Another way to consider that is, is this impacting my relationships, my work, my school life, or my social life? Oftentimes, these may be irrational fears because it's starting now to take things away from your life. Another way to consider this is, again, to look out to what other folks are doing if we can't trust our own gut on this. Is the average person doing the thing that I'm afraid of or interacting with the thing that I'm afraid of, or is the average person seemingly okay with what I'm worried about? That might be a good way to tell and a a good way to compare or judge a situation. As with most things, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. No one is going to make you go on a roller coaster or pet a snake 
or fly. For the most part, we can get along with life just fine without these things. Now, this may not be the case when it comes to medical treatment. However, when we say that we're unwilling to experience any sort of pain, we accept the natural consequences for our decisions. It is across the board with any sort of pain or fear that we have. If you're afraid of dogs, you know that you're likely to not be in a relationship with someone who loves dogs, or likely to go really anywhere in public because people like dogs. If you're afraid of heights, you are likely to not be okay with having a job in tall buildings, or even travel, depending on, on whether or not there are a lot of bridges or, or some other elements in the journey that are relatively high up. If you're afraid of a medical treatment and the, and the pain and discomfort that comes from surgery or shots or something like that, you're accepting that you'll have to suffer, perhaps unnecessarily, in some cases, or even experience a worsening of your symptoms. Now, the consequences can even be a loss of experience, which may be a value of yours. Now, that's a value of mine. One of the reasons I'm doing the podcast is because this makes me uncomfortable. This is scary, but it's also something I've wanted to do. So was I going to not do it and potentially face the possibility that I wouldn't have this experience? Or am I going to do it and potentially face my fear and see what happens? So as we all know, people don't change unless we have a reason to change. If you finally got to that point, if you think about your fear and the time that it's taken away from you, in the ways that it's limiting you, then you're eventually going to have to face those fears. Now, there are plenty of ways to go about doing this, and therapies is a great way to start. Again, you know that I'm biased. I'm a uh, mother-effing therapist. Now, there are plenty of books out there, by the way, that are going to offer really good tips on how to get started in facing your fears. My basic advice is to jump right in and do it. If you're afraid of snakes, find a pet store and do it in a slow, progressive manner, but jump right in. Start facing those fears. If you're afraid of snakes, find a pet store or a local zoo with snakes and go. Look at those animals. Yeah, it's going to feel uncomfortable, but stay in that feeling. Stay there in it. If you're afraid of needles, get needles from a drugstore and, and have them around the house and get used to seeing them. Eventually, as you start getting more comfortable with them, I would challenge you to actually commit to giving blood on a regular basis. The more you go do your fear, the easier it does become. And by the way, I don't love giving blood. I don't love getting shots, but I've also committed to going and giving blood as, as often as the, the Red Cross will let me. Um, and every time I get a shot, I wince or I, I get uncomfortable and my body tenses up. It's because I'm about to have a, a, a stick of metal shoved into my arm. Uh, and no, it doesn't feel good. At least to me, it doesn't feel good. So I don't like it. But, but again, I, my value behind it is I, I think it's important. So I go and do it. I think doing this podcast is important. So I'm doing it. And we'll see what happens. If you're afraid of clowns, print out pictures of clowns and surround yourself with them. Just put them all over the room. But start slow. Even talk with a friend who can help support you and encourage you along the way if you can't find a therapist. But get out there and go do it. So think about that thing that you're afraid of. Think about what's one thing you can do this week that would help you get closer to that fear, help you experience that fear. Maybe bring a friend along with you just to take that one step this week. The more you do it, the easier it's going to get. 
All right, on to some questions. So this is a threefer. This question was asked over on Reddit by uh, Reddit user BriskWalked. So he asks three questions. What is the usual time for results for OCD, moderate to severe? They ask, why is ERP only 80% effective or something like that, and not 100%? And lastly, they ask, why is OCD more intense from year to year? All right, so let's go with that first one. What are the usual results for OCD, moderate to severe? So this question is super broad. My answer is super broad. Generally speaking, I'll say treatment is usually going to be anywhere between three and six months of weekly treatment. However, this can vary significantly. It can be much shorter. It can be much longer. It can depend on a ton of factors. Some of those factors are the amount of time you're able to dedicate to treatment outside of session. So if I'm meeting with someone, a typical frequency would be meeting with a therapist once a week for a clinical hour. So that's 50 minutes for all you out there. So if I'm with you for one hour a week, that means you're with you the other 167 hours of the week. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time to dedicate to treatment. And it, takes, it does take a lot of work. I often say, my job is to put myself out of a job. The best way to do that is to practice what we're talking about. If you practice it, you get really good at it. And hopefully that means as you continue to work on it, the faster treatment will go and the more you'll get out of it. Another factor is the amount of willingness that someone's willing to put into treatment and actually to use the tools offered outside of session. So sometimes it's easy to do them in session, but to do them outside of session, well, that's that's a different question. There can be complicating variables, by the way. Some of those factors can be the amount of school or workload you have. Sometimes we go through seasons where it's just taking up a whole bunch of time. Um, I've worked with folks who are going through a breakup in their relationship, and they are just distracted, and they're not going to get as much out of treatment, or it's going to extend the, the length of treatment. In terms of the results of treatment, uh, research also suggests the level of insight is also pivotal to treatment outcomes. So what's insight? Using ACT language, using acceptance and commitment therapy language, we can think about insight as one's ability to diffuse from thoughts and actually see that their thoughts and their feelings are just that, thoughts and feelings. In other words, to know that or to to have a greater ability to see that their thoughts are, are, aren't 100% fact, but are just things going through one's mind. And perhaps the compulsions that they feel they have to do aren't something they have to do. So they have an understanding of what the process is that they're experiencing internally. Another way to think about insight is a greater ability to understand the internal workings of yourself to know how your anxiety works, to know what tends to trigger you, to know what's going to happen or what's likely to happen if you do one behavior over another, and to know what sort of elements contribute to your thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. Now, if some of those things are difficult, and, and for some of us it is difficult to develop insight or to have insight into that, especially if we are, again, to borrow ACT language, if we are especially fused with our thoughts, if we really do think that the thoughts I have are me or describe me, then it makes treatment really, really difficult. It's tough to argue with or challenge 
that fear or to even take a risk through exposure if we genuinely do think that if I do X, if I touch that doorknob, um, if, I, if I genuinely think I'm going to get sick, then that's going to be a problem. It's going to make it difficult. Now, as a colleague of mine points out, if we don't have insight in treatment, then we need willingness and we need a ton of it. Willingness is just our ability to say, sure, I'll do that or I'll go there. It's hard to do. It's uncomfortable to do it. But if it doesn't seem to make sense, we can go for it anyways through willingness. Making sense of it would be the insight element of it. So you'll also probably read about different studies they, they've done on treatment for OCD with a significant drop-off in symptoms after 10 sessions or, or 15 sessions or a very short amount of time. So you might be going to a therapist and saying, well, why is it that, why is it that you're saying three to six months when the study has said 10 sessions and someone can be significantly better? Well, those studies are designed under ideal circumstances and they have very willing participants the treatment is also very, very manualized with a strict protocol, meaning they're going to go like this. Meeting one, we're talking about this. Session two, we're talking about this other thing. So they're going to move pretty quickly through treatment through each tool, each session at a time. And typically, however, outpatient treatment. So if you're seeing a therapist uh, just at, at a regular old office, it's, to, it's usually outpatient treatment, um, they're, they're going to be more tailored to your individual needs and kind of focusing on the specific issues that are going on in your life and taking the time with the individual subjects that you need. When I'm working with somebody, I might spend a lot of time talking about cognitive distortions. Now, for somebody else, I might gloss over that very quickly and go on to exposure and response prevention, or we're going to spend a ton of time in mindfulness we're going to spend almost no time in mindfulness, especially if insight is going to be of concern. So all of these can affect the length of treatment. So next question, why is ERP only 80% effective or something like that and not 100%? So according to the IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation's website, 7 out of 10 people, so 70% of people, will benefit from either medication treatment or exposure and response prevention, ERP. One of the unfortunate facts about life is nothing is 100%. Even the best medical treatments that we have out there for anything are only so effective. And ERP does have its limitations, as, as mentioned above. Something to also know that can be confounding variables for treatment and making it less effective is that OCD is often comorbid, meaning co-occurring with other disorders that can complicate treatment and can exp uh, extend treatment or make it a lot more difficult to work with. OCD can often be accompanied with an eating disorder, which is going to complicate things. Anxiety can often be complicated by drug addiction or substance abuse, that is going to complicate treatment and extends it out. And it's also going to make treatment in some ways less effective. Now, there are some new medicalized treatments that are available to people who have not responded to or have symptoms that are resistant to traditional treatments. So again, the IOCDF website is careful to note that these new approaches are still being researched and are not, and are not guarantees of success. So um, when I was speaking to a psychiatrist recently, um, they were saying that these treatments should be considered, could be considered only after all other behavioral treatments, levels of care, and prescription medications have been exhausted. As long as you've done everything and tried everything and you're still not getting the results that you want, perhaps one of these other treatments can be 
considered. So you can go to OCDF's website and actually get some more information about them. So the last question, why is OCD more intense from year to year? My simple answer to that is we are dynamic people. So we change from year to year as people. We have developing interests. We have different values from year to year. Just things are more important or less important throughout our lives. Being that OCD tends to attack the things in our lives that seem to be most valuable to us, it seems reasonable to assume that as one area of our life becomes um, more focused on, on something, that OCD is going to likely gravitate towards that thing in some way. And it's then going to kind of let go of its clutches on some other areas of your life. So why is it more intense than from year to year? Meaning, the I'm assuming the the intensity of the symptoms, the subjective level of distress. Why is that different from year to year? Well, it's kind of the nature of the beast. Things change, things migrate, and we can't expect OCD to be the same from year to year, from moment to moment, from day to day. That'd be expecting OCD to be way too tame and predictable. But rather, our job is not to expect it to be the same, but is to work towards being flexible and, f- and, and fluctuating with it, with its intensities, and being willingness to resist compulsion as the anxiety goes up and down. That's what we've been talking about in, fu- in previous episodes and what we'll be talking about in future episodes as well. But I hope I answered your question and asked a lot of really great questions. So thank you so much for those. That's about enough of that for one day. Thank you again for making it through this episode of the FearCast. Uh, Again, please remember that the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have any questions about therapy or getting started in treatment, you can visit our website, fearcastpodcast.com. Visit the Find Help link there. As I mentioned at the top, if you have questions for a future episode, please give me a call at 714-594-9281 or go to the website, fearcastpodcast.com and submit a question there. So thank you so much again for listening. And as always, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.